here to visit a little bit about Obamacare. The, uh, it, maybe the theme of my presentation today is going to be along the lines of Paul Harvey. Some of you may remember Paul Harvey looking into the room. I can tell people some of you may have never heard of Paul Harvey before. Paul Harvey uh, was a very famous radio personality in the state of Texas. I'm not in the state of Texas, across the world, really. But the programs I would hear him on were here in the state of Texas. And he would bring up a story that everyone was familiar with and uh, connect people's minds to that familiar story. And then he would tell you what's called the rest of the story, letting people know more detail, more insight about things they hadn't heard of before. And that's exactly what I want to do with you about Obamacare today. All of you all have heard about Obamacare probably more than you wanted to hear. But there are, is so much more about the rest of the story that you need to hear about. And to kind of help you understand a, a lens or perspective about the rest of the story that I want to visit with you about, the context is to think about, if you would, the legal perspective about what lawyers may do going forward because of the Obamacare decision. But before I get into that, I want to pick up on something Emily said, uh, and that is the issue about your cell phones. Uh, I, I will kind of backtrack on what she said and tell you to get your cell phone out. Turn it on, be sure and fire it up, and you can add, as one of the peoples you follow on Twitter, my account. I'll tell you the name and I'll tell you why you want to add it. Uh, my Twitter address is Greg Abbott underscore TX. That would be G-R-E-G-A-B-B-O-T-T underscore TX. And as Emily told you in the introduction, she mentioned that I was at the United States Supreme Court for all three days of the oral argument. I was there at the time when the opinion was read from the bench of the United States Supreme Court. And the relationship to Twitter is that I was tweeting immediately about what was going on from the United States Supreme Court courthouse. I know that remarkable journalists like Emily and the Texas Tribune like to be the first to tell you what's going on. They're actually the second because they get their news from my Twitter account. <laughs> so if you follow me on Twitter at greg. A-B-B, then the underscore sign T-X, you'll know things such as when the federal court decision came out about the voter ID case or about redistricting and my immediate response to it, even before you can pick up that penetrating news from the Texas Tribune itself. But now for the rest of the story about what happened with Obamacare, the decision and where we go from here. I think the first thing to understand is that to, to understand where we're going and the power that may drive where we're going, you need to first understand where we came from, what got us into this situation, because what got us into this situation was transformative itself. The way all this began is it, the, the, the timeline works like this. The, the law was signed into effect in mid-March of 2010, in late December of 2009, myself and 12 other state attorneys general fired off a letter to Harry Reid, to the United States Senate, to the leaders in the Capitol, talking about dangers and concerns that we had about the Nebraska Compromise. You may remember it also as the Cornhusker Kickback. Is the thing that rankled the state attorneys general in the states initially. This was the part of the looming Obamacare law that in order to get the vote of the senator from the state of Nebraska, what the Senate did was to cut Nebraska a break that no one else got, and that was to exempt Nebraska from having Nebraskans pay for the cost of the build-out of the Medicaid system in Nebraska. So this was basically publicly sanctioned bribery from the floor of the United States Senate in order to get the one last vote in order to pass Obamacare. But we knew that 
Nebraska was going to be getting a break that the taxpayers of the state of Texas were not going to get. In fact, even worse, the taxpayers of the state of Texas would be funding the build-out of the Medicaid system expansion in the state of Nebraska. And so we fired off a letter saying that if you all pass a law with this provision still in it, we, these 13 state attorneys general, will be seeing you in court. We know the way things evolved. This became such a public firestorm that the United States Senate needed to withdraw that component of the Obamacare law. But a theme that you will see develop and evolve and expand as we go through the Obamacare case is that by that time, the state attorneys general were emboldened to ensure that we would take action against any possible legal violation that was going to be forced upon the people of this country because of the Obamacare law. So for the months of January, February, and early March of 2012, we began mastering the details of what eventually became the lawsuit that we filed one hour after the president signed Obamacare into law. Now, when we filed this lawsuit in March of 2010, it was widely panned, ridiculed, and hastily dismissed. Nancy Pelosi was caught on TV that day saying, you know, who are these attorneys general? What, who, what makes them think that they can file a lawsuit challenging a federal law about health care? As we went forward in the months ahead, Pretty much every pundit in the country, law professors, journalists, uh, anyone who wanted to talk about the issue, said that the claims that we were waging had no chance whatsoever. Quickly dismissed, complete waste of time and resources. And the reason was simple. The primary claim that we were waging was the claim challenging the individual mandate, this requirement that Congress passed a law forcing Americans to go out and purchase a product even if they don't want to. The reason why our claim was dismissed by all the pundits and criticized and ridiculed is because Congress's authority in trying to pass that law was based upon the Commerce Clause. And as almost everyone has known, since the time of FDR, the Commerce Clause has been read more and more expansively, giving Congress virtually unlimited authority to impose on this country whatever kinds of rules and regulations Congress wanted to impose. The other claim that we put in there was viewed even more ridiculously, and that is the claim that Congress was coercing the states by forcing us to expand our Medicaid system. How in the world could we allege that Congress was coercing us to do anything when the federal government was going to be funding most of that expansion? More importantly, when, if ever, has a court held that Congress can be limited in what it's going to force the states to do with regard to implementing a federal program. Well, these criticisms continued up until the day that our case went to trial. The case that we filed expanded from 13 states to 26 states. More than half of the states of this country were suing their own government because they believed that what their government had forced on them violated the United States Constitution. And then when we went to trial, argued that case, and got the decision from the federal district judge agreeing with our position that Obamacare, in fact, did violate the Constitution, suddenly there was a, an awakening about the reality that there is going to be some force behind what the state attorneys general are waging in this litigation. 
That, of course, was expanded upon even further when our case was appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, where we won again. And then, of course, we went to the Supreme Court. To help you understand the magnitude of this case, to help you realize the fact that this case is the most important Supreme Court decision in your lifetime, just look at the way the United States Supreme Court itself captured the case when it decided to grant oral argument. Every oral argument at the United States Supreme Court is one hour long. There have been many cases the state of Texas has been involved in, that other states and parties have been involved in the U.S. Supreme Court. All those cases last one hour. In setting this case for oral argument, the United States Supreme Court set it for three days. The last time that happened was about 50 years ago. And when you see the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision, you can see why the court set it for three days of oral arguments. The reason is because as we peel back the layers of this decision, and you can see where we're going, you see that this Supreme Court decision changed American jurisprudence and altered the tools that are available to states in challenging the federal government in ways that will be unveiled even more in the years and decades to come. But during these three days of oral arguments, after the first day when the individual mandate was argued, the person in the nation who best captured what had taken place was Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin is the legal commentator for CNN. And he talked about his astonishment about his observations in the United States Supreme Courtroom because he said that in that one day that the individual mandate was argued, the Obamacare case had turned into a train wreck for the Obama administration. But it got worse because on the next day, when the other issues were argued, Jeffrey Tubin went back on TV and said, the Obamacare case has gone from a train wreck to a plane crash for the Obama administration. And suddenly, there was panic sweeping across the nation about everyone who realized that suddenly this massive reforming law actually could be stricken down. That was in the end of March of this year. We left there, we, the states who brought the lawsuit, left there feeling pretty good about the decision. I returned to the United States Supreme Court at the end of June to listen to the decision as, as it was read from the court. And I knew that we were going to be dealing with a sense of legal history, but I didn't realize the twists and turns in somewhat of a roller coaster type fashion that we would go on just during the course of the time that the decision was read from the bench of the United States Supreme Court. The reader was Chief Justice Roberts, and as he read the opinion, he went in order of what they had decided in the case. The first issue was whether or not the Anti-Tax Injunction Act applied. And the court said, no, it didn't apply because Obamacare was not a tax. I'm not going to go into detail about this issue, but what this issue really involves is whether or not someone can legally challenge a tax before they have to pay it, or do they have to pay the tax first before they can challenge it? The reason this is important is if, if everyone could challenge a tax law whenever it was passed before they pay the tax, they could effectively deny the federal government the revenue that it needs in order to even keep the doors open. And so they have this Anti-Tax Injunction Act. The only time it applies is when the act passed by Congress is, in fact, a tax. And so Chief Justice Roberts read off his opinion that Obamacare was not a tax, and therefore 
the Anti-Injunction Act did not apply. Then he got to the next issue, the issue of the individual mandate. This was the issue that everyone in the entire nation had focused on. It was the issue our case was premised upon. It was the issue that the Obama lawyers in response had focused the weight of their argument. It was the issue that dominated the oral argument at the United States Supreme Court. It was the issue that would be anticipated to be the defining constitutional moment. And as the Chief Justice was reading off his decision, articulating how the Supreme Court of the United States agreed that Congress had violated the Constitution when it imposed that individual mandate forcing people to go out and buy a product, we knew that we were in the throes of making history. Then he read another component, which is a more nuanced constitutional detail. It involves what's called the Necessary and Proper Clause of the, of the Constitution, which basically empowers Congress to pass all laws that are necessary and proper to fulfill all their other laws. And it, too, was one of those constitutional claims that everyone said that anything Congress does is going to be considered to be necessary and proper. And so as the Chief Justice read off about how the Necessary and Proper Clause had been violated by the United States Congress, we knew that the decision was in our hands, only to be stunned two minutes later as the Chief Justice continued reading his opinion and reading that in direct contradiction to his comments just minutes before that Obamacare is not a tax for purposes of the Anti-Injunction Act, he then read that Obamacare, in fact, was a tax for purposes of deciding whether or not Obamacare was constitutional. It was almost a Hamlet-esque type moment. To tax or not to tax, or to be a tax or not to be a tax. And you could sense that hand-wringing on his part in his decision-making process. I think there was immense hand-wringing about trying to find a way for him to uphold the constitutionality of the Obamacare law. But then after that, he got to the last part of the opinion, which equally surprised us. Because in that part of the opinion, he agreed that the part of the Obamacare law that required states to expand their Medicaid systems was unconstitutional. Now, let me just quickly run through these three things and then close it up and we'll take a few questions. On the individual mandate, here's what you need to know about where we are and where we're going. In this decision, it's the first meaningful time that the Commerce Clause has been constrained. Throughout the opinion about the Commerce Clause and the Medicaid provision, if you pull out the opinion and read it, with the exception of the tax mandate, it reads like a Tea Party manifesto. You will see repeated references to state sovereignty, to states' rights, to individual liberty, and how Congress had trampled upon individual liberty by forcing Americans to purchase a product in the form of health care insurance against their will. The essence of it is the Supreme Court agreed that Congress cannot force you into an activity that you don't want to participate in. If you engage in an activity, then Congress can regulate it. If you choose not to engage in an activity, Congress cannot regulate it. And so in this regard, because of its decision, it not only was historic in its reigning in of the Commerce Clause, but the way the state attorneys general view it, we are looking at this decision for other possible legal challenges that can be waged for Congress violating the Commerce Clause. Let me give you one example of what we've already looked at. There'll be many more coming forward. One of the laws that 
has been applied and attempted or considered to be applied in the state of Texas is the Endangered Species Act. There was a big issue a few months ago about a lizard in West Texas and whether or not the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the federal government was going to basically uh, have a dramatic effect on the ability of the energy industry in West Texas uh, to explore and produce energy production. The reason is because of a lizard in West Texas that was considered to be potentially endangered. If the U.S. Fish and Wildlife had declared that lizard to be endangered, a path that we were considering taking was challenging the constitutionality of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Congress's ability to enforce that law. The reason is because that law was premised on the Commerce Clause and because we considered that the application of the Commerce Clause in that situation was an overreach. We don't need to go down the details of that legal matter right now, but I'm trying to foreshadow for you the takeaway the state attorneys general have of this decision, which is one in which we are going to be more thoroughly evaluating laws passed by Congress that are premised on the Commerce Clause and challenging some of those in the future. The second thing in the court's decision was upholding the law as a constitutional tax. Now, here's the reality. One of the broadest authorities Congress has is based upon the tax and spend clause. And that is heavily why Chief Justice Roberts agreed to uphold this case. But there's a danger in the scope and breadth of the decision here. What Congress has done in the past is to tax activities. If you engage in work, Congress can tax you. If you make a purchase, you can be taxed. Never before that I'm aware of has Congress been allowed to tax someone for refusing to undertake an activity. If you make a conscious decision that you don't want to do something, so you completely avoid any kind of activity, now, based on Obamacare, Congress can tax you. For those who make the decision not to go out and purchase health care insurance, you're going to be subject to a tax. Now, here's the bizarre thing about this decision. In order for an act of Congress to be considered a tax, the primary goal of that act has to be one of raising revenue for the United States government. The primary goal of Obamacare was not to raise revenue. In fact, if the goal of Obamacare is achieved, they will raise zero dollars in revenue. Because if their goal is achieved, it means that everyone will be going out making the purchase of health care insurance, and no one will have to pay the penalty for failure to make that purchase. So you can see through that one fundamental principle the way in which the Chief Justice overreached in order to try to find a way to uphold the law as being constitutional. The third issue is the Medicaid expansion issue. Another historic moment here that is going to empower states with regard to more litigation against Congress, limiting Congress's ability to pierce too deeply into the affairs of states. Basically, what the Supreme Court said is that whenever the federal government imposes a program on states, it's in the nature of a contract. States must agree to the terms of that contract and do so willingly just like any other parties to a contract, in order for those states to be bound by the terms of that contract. States cannot be forced, using the language of Chief Justice Roberts, with a gun to the head into having to comply with a law passed by Congress. And that's precisely what Congress tried to do with the Medicaid expansion part of the Obamacare law, because what Congress said is that you, the state of Texas, you, all the states of the United States, 
you are compelled, you are coerced into taking the Medicaid expansion that is ordered under Obamacare, and if you fail to do so, then they are going to withdraw all the funding that you receive under the pre-existing Medicaid program. And the Supreme Court rightfully agreed that was a violation of the Constitution spending clause by the United States Congress. This is the first major hemming in of the spending clause coming out of the United States Supreme Court that I'm aware of. It's also the first decision from the Supreme Court that puts limitations on the Medicaid program. But also it raises a consciousness and awareness among the states about making a decision before they agree to any federal program. Because what the court said is once that agreement is made by the states, once they enter into the agreement, there's no backing out. It's kind of like that Hotel California type moment. You can check in, but you can never check out. That is why the state of Texas and my legal advice to the state is going to be one of being very cautious about whether or not they are going to agree to the Medicaid expansion that is offered by Obamacare. Because if they agree to it, they're going to be stuck with it. Now, you all probably know that the first couple of years of that expansion will have 100% of that expansion paid for by the federal government. You also know that that will be shifting and changing to right now as much as 10% of it applied by the states. But here's the reality. That percentage can change any time down the road and most likely will. It'll be reduced from uh, the federal government providing 90% to some percentage less. It could be 80%, 70%, 60%, whatever they want to make it later on down the road. Once we are in the program, we will forever be stuck by the terms of that program. And so you can expect the state of Texas to look very cautiously about entering to this program. But I think some of the most powerful statements of the court came from the court's decision that talks about these state powers and the limit on the federal government powers. Let me read you just two quick quotes from the court's action. One is that the national government possesses only limited powers. The states and the people retain the remainder. That basically is just a restatement of the Tenth Amendment without citing the Tenth Amendment. The other one is that the independent power of the states serves as a check on the power of the federal government. Here again, there was a reaffirmation of an argument that has been made and waged and fought over over the past couple of years. You've heard this phrase, states' rights. And as that phrase was raised during the course of this litigation, we frequently heard that, you know, states' rights is something that was decided more than 100 years ago against the states. And that would be an erroneous conclusion. As the Supreme Court itself made clear, states' rights are alive and well and expected to be asserted going forward. Now, let me mention two other things, two or three other things real quick, and then take a few questions. One is that even though the litigation was lost as far as, far as the overall constitutionality of Obamacare, it doesn't mean legal fights over the law are over with. For one, we already have a legal challenge concerning some of the details of the rules and regulations that are coming out. The reality is that most of the law is still being written. The statute itself, passed by Congress, of course, is already inked. But the rules and regulations that are coming out of the Health and Human Services, out of the IRS, out of so many other federal agencies, many of those are still forthcoming. And as we see some of those rules and regulations arise, we're going to see issues that require constitutional challenges. 
one we've already filed a lawsuit on, and that is the constitutionality of the mandate issued by the Health and Human Services Department requiring religious-based organizations to provide services or purchase products contrary to their religious beliefs. Another thing that's going to arise that you need to understand is the reality that Obamacare is not yet settled law. Now, you've heard what has been talked about in the presidential campaign. You've heard Mitt Romney say that if he is elected, he will repeal and replace Obamacare. Usually when he says that, you get the same people who roll their eyes saying, well, that'll never happen, who said that about the attorneys general who brought this lawsuit in the first place and got the decision saying that the individual mandate was unconstitutional and that the Medicaid coercion expansion was unconstitutional. So whenever you hear someone say that Mitt Romney, if he's elected, is not going to be able to repeal Obamacare, you need to let him know that the probability of that happening is the same as the probability of us saying that Congress acted illegally on the individual mandate and Medicaid expansion, which would be very high. Now, on the practicality of it, you may think, well, it's just, it, look, practically it can't happen. The reality is you may not see the totality of Obamacare pulled down, but you most certainly would see the tax mandate pulled down. Remember this. The Obamacare now has been transformed into the Obama tax. It's a tax that hits most heavily on middle class, and you probably saw this story earlier this week, that with each passing day they learn more about the depth and scope of this tax that's going to be imposed on American people. Now it will hit at least 6 million Americans, primarily people who make $250,000 or less. That's a tax that middle-class Americans don't want to be saddled with, and it will be easy to pull down that component of the Obamacare law. It will be easy to pull down other components of the law. It will be easy for Congress to decide there are certain aspects of Obamacare that might provide good quality services for the people of America that need to find a way to be plugged into a new law. My point is this, and that is I believe that the, the legislative ability and the political will exists to overturn Obamacare through an act of Congress and through executive action if Mitt Romney is elected. So the sun has not yet set on this law altogether. The last thing I'll mention to you is based upon an assumption that Obamacare does survive. And it's based upon anecdotes that I have received repeatedly across the state of Texas, uh, as well as a study that was published by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And it points out to the challenges that Texans and Americans are going to have in accessing health care if the law continues. One thing that I've heard consistently I would say the thing that I've heard the most as I've talked about Obamacare across the state, whether it be in the Panhandle, South Texas, El Paso, East Texas, or right here in Austin, and that is physician after physician after physician says that if Obamacare becomes effective law, they are going to get out of the practice of medicine. I have yet to hear a single person say, because of Obamacare, I'm going to get into the practice of medicine. And the point is this. With a law that's going to require so many more people to get plugged into the federal-provided health care system, you're going to find fewer physicians, doctors, and health care providers available to provide those services. You cannot have an, an incredible increase in demand for services while at the same time you have a decrease in the supply of the people pr providing those services without being forced into a waiting list type situation and a rationing type situation. I anticipate dramatic increase in the frustration that people have with their healthcare system because of this. And there is a factor that is going to exacerbate that even more. You all were told that if you like your health care, you're going to get to keep it. That promise was premised on this one notion, and that is the health care provided by your employer 
will still be there for you. The Texas Public Policy Foundation published a paper that supports what I've heard anecdotally many times over across the state of Texas. And that is there's going to be a significant percentage of businesses that provide health care insurance for their employees that will not do so in the future. The reason is, one reason why some employees go to work for an employer is because their employer has health care insurance for them. If the employer in the future says, listen, it's a lot cheaper for me to pay the $2,000 or so penalty required by Obamacare as opposed to paying, let's say, $10,000 for the health care program for my employee, I can save $8,000 per employee while at the same time ensuring that my employees have access to health care insurance through the Obamacare plan. We multiply $8,000 per employee times, let's say, 100 employees or 1,000 employees, you're talking about very real money. The more you see businesses make decisions like that, the more you're going to find even more people forced into this government-run health care program, again, with less supply there of health care providers to service that need, seeing the challenges that will be imposed because of this law. And I think when you see the result of it, you will see it is a step, a gravitational step, towards an attempt at achieving a single-payer system for health care in the United States. But going back to my premise of what I told you initially about the rest of the story, the reality about this decision that was issued by the United States Supreme Court is despite the fact that ultimately it upheld Obamacare, it also ultimately restated the premise of states' rights, states' responsibility, and the power of state attorneys general to use every tool in the toolbox to question the constitutionality of laws passed by Congress. Those are the kinds of things that you can expect going forward because of this decision. Thank you so much for your attention. I'll be happy to take a few questions. If you have questions for the Attorney General, uh, feel free to please stand up at the mic. Um, I'll quickly try to get him to break a little news by asking what his aspirations are in 2014. Well, thank you, Emily, for being uh, off topic. (laughs) But, uh, Emily, you know as well as anyone, I have my hands full in waging these legal challenges, so my focus is solely upon what we're working on right now, and politics will take care of itself. I knew it would be quick. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Sam Richardson from the LBJ School. Uh, I wanted to ask, what would happen if Texas expanded Medicaid and then several years down the line decided to contract the program? And if that's a decision that's available, why shouldn't Texas take the federal money now and reevaluate several years down the line? As I understand it, once the decision is made to expand it, legally, they wouldn't have the ability to contract it. It's not the kind of thing where... Uh, Department of Health and Human Services in Washington is going to say, okay, you really don't want to participate as much as you did before. Uh, We're going to let you pull back the way you want. Uh, They will be able, they being the federal government, will be able to impose whatever requirements they want, preventing Texas from being able to control its own destiny. So the better tool, the better angle, would be the one that would provide Texas the greatest flexibility in achieving that goal at the beginning point. It's like if if you go back to to what I told you the the Supreme Court said, this is a contract. What you enter in the contract, you're stuck by the terms of the contract. One of the terms of the contract is that Health and Human Services in Washington is going to be able to change and alter it to your detriment, and you're stuck even if you don't like that. But frankly, none of these decisions will be made by me. They're going to be made by the person right over your left shoulder, Uh, and that is Dr. Kyle Janik, who is now the incoming, is it chair? I call it head chieftain, executive director of the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. He just wanted to come see. He's trying to get some free legal advice from his lawyer today. Thank you. Sure. 
Good morning. My name is Gita Kajareth. I'm a junior at UT, and I'm also the president of a pre-law organization on campus. And I wanted to know what advice do you have for pre-law students at UT about getting involved in the legal field and, of course, working for your office? Well, I can tell uh, by the fact that you are so intelligent by being here, you're the kind of law student we're looking for. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the main thing, uh, my main advice to you is Find out what is in your heart about what interests you and what you want to do. And recognize the reality that regardless of where you are on the philosophical spectrum, uh, the, the law is a tool that, for one, will help you solve problems, but two, help you address the larger challenges that our society faces. And so if you can follow your heart, use your, your legal background uh, as a tool of solving the challenges we face uh, in this country, you personally will be a tremendous success, uh, but your state and your community will benefit because of it. Thank you. Hi, my name is David Wiley, and I'm from San Marcos. My uh, legal experience involves watching Boston Legal on Sunday night, so I'm kind of going out on a limb here. But just to take this a little bit different path, um, from the average person that's reading the newspaper and following your office uh, in, the, in the news, it seems like you're spending a lot of time in federal court challenging this and that from the Obama administration, whether it be uh, preclearance in the Voting Rights Act, redistricting, uh, Endangered Species Act, uh, uh, voter ID, all this stuff. Uh, to the cynics that are out there who say that your office has become extremely politicized, how do you answer that question? Because it appears that this could you know, uh, be a pandering to the uh, Tea Party mentality for future uh, political opportunities for people in your office, or perhaps this is truly you doing the work of Texas first. I just worry that the, your office is becoming so politicized that every time that you're in federal court challenging something from a Democratic administration, it raises eyebrows. And if you could maybe cover the lawsuits you filed in federal court during the Bush administration, that'd be helpful too. Sure, sure. Great question. Uh, let me give you a very complete answer. Um, we have been required uh, to file these legal actions in federal court because of unprecedented action being taken by the most partisan political organization in Washington that we've ever seen. Let me back that up. You can see with the passage of Obamacare, the United States Supreme Court agreed with us that Congress and this law violated the United States Constitution under the Commerce Clause and under the Spending Clause. You can see through uh, our recent victories at, against the EPA in federal court, uh, where the federal court said that the EPA was acting in violation of the law by trying to impose regulations on Texas that it had no legal authority to do so. Let me give you a quick example about that. They have this rule called the Cross-State Air Pollution Rule. They tried to impose on the state of Texas. Okay, well, state of Texas shouldn't be polluting across state lines. What state was it the state of Texas was polluting? Was it our neighbor New Mexico? Maybe our neighbor Oklahoma? Maybe our neighbor Arkansas or Louisiana? The answer would be no to all those. It wasn't even a state that was adjacent to one of our neighbors. The EPA said Texas was polluting only the good citizens who live in Granite City, Illinois. How they were able to reach that conclusion, no one knows, including the federal court, which is why they struck down the illegal action of the EPA. Let's look at the voter ID law. This, better than anything else, captures the political motivations by the White House. The year that Barack Obama was elected president, the United States Supreme Court issued an opinion saying that voter ID laws are perfectly constitutional. The year before Barack Obama took president, then the United States Department of Justice said voter ID laws not only are perfectly constitutional, but in fact, voter ID laws are necessary in order to prevent voter impersonation. Only after there was a new administration in Washington did they then take a position directly contrary to the position they had taken 
just a few months before. The last point here is that first and foremost, my obligation, I take an oath of office. That oath of office is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and laws of this country. By ensuring that Obamacare lives within the strictures of the United States Constitution, I have done more to fulfill my oath of office than anything else. However, there is a practical side to this that's incredibly important for people to understand. Because the, the same people who criticize our actions as being maybe somehow politically motivated, you know, maybe we spent too much money in pursuing these legal actions. That would be an uninformed opinion because of this. When you consider the fact that we won on the Medicaid coercion component of Obamacare, that one legal action alone could save Texas taxpayers billions of dollars, according to the Texas Health and Human Services Commission estimations. Over the first 10 years of implementation, it would have cost more than $10 billion to implement the Medicaid expansion. And so to invest, let's say, a million dollars and get a multi-billion dollar return, it's a solid investment for taxpayers. Second, in that EPA case I mentioned earlier, the cross-state air pollution rule, had that rule gone into effect, there were more than 500 jobs that would have been lost. There were reports that electrical reliability would have been challenged in the state of Texas. Protecting Texas jobs, protecting electrical reliability, those are tangible, meaningful results achieved by the state of Texas. With regard to the voter ID law, we shouldn't have been involved in that litigation in the first place because if the United States Department of Justice that existed the year before Barack Obama took effect had passed judgment on this, that law would have been upheld, not challenged in court. On redistricting, if you look what happened there, had there not been an erroneous ruling from the lower court to begin with, we wouldn't have had to spend the time going up to the Supreme Court. In this process, we did something that basically hasn't been done in a long, long time. Because of an erroneous ruling by a lower court, I filed an appeal in the Supreme Court. Within weeks, the Supreme Court took the case. Within a month, they had oral argument. Eleven days after an oral argument, they issued a decision that was unanimous. Somehow, we were able to galvanize not only Chief Justice Roberts, Scalia, Alito, but also Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, all in one decision. That is how wrong the lower court decision was, which shows that the people who brought that litigation and made those claims and got the court to decide that case had wasted everyone's time to begin with. These are the laws of the state of Texas, and it's my responsibility as attorney general to represent the state of Texas whenever its sovereignty uh, is challenged in court or whenever unconstitutional actions are taken against it. That's what we've been doing, and it has been a bargain for Texas taxpayers to get a multi-billion dollar return for just a few million dollars in expenditures. I'm Hendrik Hertzberg from New York and the New Yorker magazine. Um, um, I want, we do have a, a single-payer government-run health system in the country for old folks, Medicare, and I'm wondering if you have an opinion about the constitutionality of that program and whether you think that, like Obamacare, it should also be repealed and replaced. On most of these programs, Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, they are based upon the tax and spend authority Congress has under the United States Constitution. Let me take a step back, because I always presume people know the first step in this process. Unlike state legislatures, the United States Congress doesn't have unlimited authority to pass whatever the law they want. In order for Congress to pass a law, they have to have a specific provision in the United States Constitution that authorizes them to pass that law. The pathway Congress has taken for a lot of these spending programs has been their tax and spend authority in the U.S. Constitution. 
Congress did not take that pathway in Obamacare. Congress overtly argued the pathway they took was the Commerce Clause. I understand that. I'm, I'm asking if you have an opinion about the constitutionality about uh, Medicare. Yeah. It, it, it is me, constitutional. Yeah, Medicare was... Medicare was based upon Congress's tax and spend authority. And so in your opinion, it is, Medicare is constitutional. It, 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 Medicare, based upon the taxing, tax and spending authority of the United States Congress, seems like it would be constitutional. I see. And then simply as a matter of public policy, do you think that Medicare should be uh, repealed and replaced? I'm the lawyer. The policy guy is right behind you. <laughs> I'm Clint Stutz with We Texans. Uh, you referenced uh, part of the decision that uh, went back to the Tenth Amendment. They mentioned the states' rights stuff. And, you know, I'm a simple guy. I'm not very educated. I went to UT Tyler, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I can read, and I, I can go back to the Federalist Papers and to the ratifying conventions and to the Philadelphia debates, and I can see that the, the tax and spend authority wasn't meant to cover even Medicare. Um, where does the Supreme Court go when they formulate these decisions? Do they go back to the source documents, the ratifying conventions, the Federalist Papers, and all that stuff? Or do they look past that and disregard that when they get these decisions? There have been some decisions in recent years where it seemed like they went beyond the source documents. In this decision, they actually mention James Madison, Federalist Papers, documents like that uh, in different aspects of the opinion. All that being said, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, and, and people have been coming in and out. I don't know if you are here when I said this earlier. But what, what the court did in, the, in upholding the law as a constitutional tax under Congress's tax and spend authority is beyond where it had ever gone before and now has expanded Congress's taxing authority beyond what is used in the past. And as a result, the common takeaway from the Supreme Court decision is there may be no outer bound to Congress's tax and spend authority based upon this decision. I guess I should clarify. Um, why would they not go to the Federalist Papers and the ratifying conventions exclusively because that's where the people said this is what this constitution means and this is why and how we're going to ratify it. Why wouldn't they go to that exclusively and not go beyond that? Well, uh, and again, I don't know if you were here earlier, but um, I mentioned, if you, if you would, the Hamlet-esque type moment that Chief Justice Roberts had in his opinion where on the one hand he said that Obamacare was not a tax on the other hand, he said that it was a tax. Our only takeaway from his conclusion that was the ultimate decision that Obamacare is a tax for purposes of constitutionality was that he was reaching to try to find some ground upon which he could rule the law constitutional. And he had to reach beyond the outer bounds of where the court had ever reached before in order to do that. Thank you all so much. Let's give a big round of applause, please, to General Abbott for joining us. Thanks so much for coming, and I hope you'll stick with us throughout the day. We have a whole bunch of great uh, healthcare panels, including uh, Dr. Janik, who's in the audience. So.